Take your copy of God's Word and be finding your place with me this morning in the second chapter of the book of Acts, uh, the end of Acts chapter 2. I want to return to this passage. Um, I was here last Sunday. I, God so stirred in my heart, I want to come back to this same text and look at it again this morning, Acts chapter 2. And I'll read from verse 40 here in just a few minutes. Um, the name Paul Gustave Doré. Gustave Doré was a renowned 19th century French artist. And he was known for his remarkable ability uh, to sketch and create masterful drawings. And his work became the inspiration for Vincent van Gogh and even filmmakers like Tim Burton. Well, there's a story that circulated around uh, about something that happened in Doré's life. Uh, it's said that he once lost his passport while traveling abroad. Now, if you've ever traveled abroad, traveled out of the country, to lose your passport, that's one of the things that you just fear the most. And I tell you, when I'm out of the country, mine stays on my person at all times, uh, almost with a chain. But Doré had lost his passport, and when he came to a border crossing, uh, he explained his situation to the guards who happened to be there at the border. And so giving his name to the official, the famous artist hoped that he would be recognized and allowed to pass on through. Well, the guard said that it was not uncommon for those who attempted to cross the border to actually claim to be someone that they were not. And so Doré insisted that he was the man that he claimed to be. And so the border official said, all right, we'll give you a test. And if you pass this test, we'll allow you to pass on through into our country. And so here was the test. It said that they handed him a pencil, and they handed him a piece of paper, and they told him to sketch a group of people who were standing nearby. And it said that Doré did it so quickly and skillfully that the border guard was convinced that he was indeed who he claimed to be. Uh, you might could say the work of his hand authenticated the words of his mouth. Now, let me tell you something. A lot of people who are Christians say one thing with their mouth, but the works of their life testify that they may not really know Christ like they claim to know him. Uh, they may be professors of the faith, but not possessors of the faith. It's one thing for you to say that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, but it's another thing entirely for that to be authenticated in your life through the way that you live your life. Now, I know that all of us as believers, there are times in our lives where the actions of our lives don't always line up with the testimony of our lips, especially when we fall into sin and disobedience. But let me tell you, if the Spirit of God lives in you, He will absolutely ring your bell when that's the case. And you'll have to make it right. Because a real Christian can't live in hypocrisy and not be under conviction. But the thing is, you read the New Testament and you discover that if the Spirit of God has truly come to take up residence in a person's life, then the fruit of the Spirit will be produced in the life of that person. And there will be tangible evidence that a person does indeed know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why I want us to go back to this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 2. Because as we consider the example of the early church here in Acts chapter 2, it's evident to us uh, that the words of their mouth, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, 
The words of their mouth lined up with the evidence of their life, the works of their life. The tongue in their mouth and the tongue in their shoe were traveling in the same direction. And the picture that we're given of the church here in Acts chapter 2 is very simple, yet it's powerful. You might could say that we're presented with the basics of body life that should be true of every Christian congregation. And when we looked at this passage last Sunday, I sort of pointed these out and referred to them as the marks of spirit-filled fellowship. And the fact that the church is established through the preaching of the gospel. Peter preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost. The Bible says that 3,000 believe. They come to faith in Jesus Christ and the church is born. And then those new believers are edified. They're built up in the faith because verse 42 says that they give themselves to the apostles' teaching. They give themselves to the truth of God's word. And then it becomes evident that they all share in a common experience, and God builds the church on a daily basis. The Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. Now, when you look at this passage and you consider the church in Acts chapter 2, what I want you to consider is that the life of God on the inside is expressed outwardly through a new rhythm of life. Their life is changed as the result of their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. These new believers are marked by a brand new devotion. They've been saved. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of them. And as a result, the life of God inside of them will work its way outside of them through a new way of living. And that's always the case with those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what James said. James said that faith apart from works is dead. It's lifeless. It's useless. And so true saving faith, it's not the kind that only expresses itself verbally and then one's life is unchanged. No, real faith results in a life change. And so you've got your Bible there, Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Let's stand together as we read the Scripture together. Acts chapter 2, verse number 40. Remember, Peter is preached on the day of Pentecost. And he closes out his message. Verse 40 says that with many other words... He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now watch this, verse 42. Look at how the life of God is going to begin expressing itself through the way that these new believers live their life. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that a remarkable picture of the early church? I want to preach from this subject this morning. Outward proof of inward life. Outward proof of inward life. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. 
And I pray that you would speak into our lives. Lord, may we be changed. May our lives be impacted as the result of being under your word. Lord, bless my feeble attempts to preach your word today. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. True saving faith in Jesus Christ will always express itself in this way. Uh, There will be outward evidence of inward change, outward proof of inward life. And it is no gospel that says a person can believe something and yet remain unchanged. Because if you truly believe something, uh, again, what Mark was saying a moment ago, if you truly believe something, it's something that you've come to place all of your confidence in. And the result of believing the gospel of Jesus means that the Spirit of God has come to live in you and begin this process of changing you. Now, you're not going to be perfect, but you're going to be in a process of being perfected. All of your life and your experience as a Christian, the Holy Spirit has a purpose and a goal in your life, and that goal is to sanctify you. Uh, to continue to set you apart, to make you different, to make you look like Jesus. And the Spirit will use the circumstances of your life, and He'll use the fellowship of believers, uh, He'll use the Word of God, and all of these come together, and it's the Spirit of God who's working to conform believers to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we see this happening here. We see this process beginning to take place in the life of the early church. They become Christians, not by their physical birth heritage, but they become Christians because of the saving work of God in their life. The Spirit of God has worked to bring conviction and to convince them about who Jesus is. And they've confessed their faith in Jesus Christ. They've experienced the new birth, and they're brought into the body of Christ, and the church is born on the day of Pentecost, and it's a radically different community than the rest of the world. And so when you look at this passage of Scripture, there are several proofs um, that these who were dead in their sins and their trespasses, they've now come to faith in Jesus Christ, and there's proof of this in their life outwardly. So in what way is this new life being outwardly expressed? Well, I'm going to show you four ways, and I'm not sure I'll get through all of these this morning, but let me give all four of these to you on the front end, and then I'll come back and start with the first thing. All right, the four proofs that I see in this passage of how new life is expressed in an outward way is that it involves separation from the world around them. These believers are separated from the world around them. And then they become dedicated to the truth. They're dedicated to the truth of God's word. And then there's a participation in the church. They're a part of a new covenant community, the church of the living God. And then there's communication of the gospel to others. I mean, how else is God going to be adding to the church daily those who are being saved? It means that salvation is of God. It's the work of God. But everywhere these new believers go, they're gossiping the gospel. (laughs) You know, I told someone here a while back that I wish that the good news would travel as fast as bad news does. You know, it's amazing how fast fake news seems to get around these days. Would to God that the good news of the gospel would get around just as quick as some, piecey, some juicy piece of gossip that someone wants to share about someone else. You know, the early church is communicating the gospel. There's a new pattern in their life. They're sharing their faith. They're living their faith outwardly. 
people are noticing this, and God is adding to the church daily those who are being saved. And so this is a remarkable passage of Scripture that shows us the proofs, outward proofs of inward life. So let me go back to this first element here, uh, separation from the world. The first way that the new life of God that has now come to take up residence in the lives of these believers, it's, it's, it's being demonstrated, it's being expressed outwardly through separation from the world. And you go back up to verses 40 and 41, and you see how Peter is continuing to exhort the crowd and bear witness, which again, that's fulfillment of what Jesus said back in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, when the Spirit came, the result of that would be them being witnesses for him in Jerusalem. And that's exactly what Peter is doing on the day of Pentecost. The life of God that's come to take up residence in Peter has absolutely changed his life empowering him to preach the gospel and to testify of Christ. And it's a very different uh, Peter than the one that we're presented with at the close of the gospels. The one who's uh, cowering down and, and denying knowing Jesus three times. Here, Peter is standing before a crowd of thousands, many of whom had crucified Jesus, and he's boldly preaching the truth about who Jesus was. And the only explanation for that is the life of God in Peter. It's the Spirit of God who's come to take up residence in his life and empower him to be the witness, just like Christ had said he would be. So he's exhorting these that are in the crowd, and then look specifically at what he says there in verse number 40. He says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That's an urgent appeal that he makes there. Um, He's using an aorist tense verb in a passive voice. It's imperative in mood. You say, what's the big deal about that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, be saved from this crooked generation. I mean, he's not painting a rosy red picture of the world here to the crowd in Jerusalem. He describes the world around these people as being crooked, a crooked generation. That word crooked there, it's the word scolios. It's the same word we get the word scoliosis from or curvature of the spine. It's a word that means bent, uh, perverse, uh, speaks of unrighteousness. And so here's what Peter is saying there in verse number 40. If you were to have any hope, it means that you've got to be saved out of this crooked culture that's bent on going its own way apart from God. He's saying, make the most of every opportunity that you have while you've been given the opportunity. Come to Christ while you have time. Be saved from this crooked generation. Don't let the opportunity slip away. Salvation is your greatest need. And since this is so, man's greatest need can't be solved by more education. His greatest need can't be solved by social reform. Uh, his greatest need can't be solved by making more money and improving his economic status and all of that. Man's greatest need is on the inside, and, and the gospel addresses that which is on the inside. We need to be saved from the midst of a crooked generation. All right, so that's the appeal that he makes. Now, watch this. There are 3,000 people in that crowd who receive the word that he preaches. They believe the message and the result of believing the message, 3,000 people are saved that day and added to the church. Isn't that a remarkable thing? They're separated from the crooked generation that Peter's talking about, and they're brought into the family of God. 
They're brought into the body of Christ in a supernatural way, and they demonstrate their new faith by being baptized. And so publicly, they're making a clean break with the world around them. Formerly, they had been identified by the world and its value system. Now, these were religious people, more than likely. These are Jews who had believed the Old Testament, and yet they were still sinners. And let me tell you something. Religious sinners are just as lost as lost sinners. You can be a religious sinner, and you can have sort of a morality about your life, and you can still split hell wide open when you die. You listening? So, so these religious sinners, they were just as lost as anyone else, even Gentiles that didn't know God. They needed to be saved. They believe the message. They're brought into the new covenant family of faith. They're now part of the church. Now, you remember what that word church means in the New Testament. Ecclesia is the Greek word. Uh, it's a compound word, comes from two words. The first word being ek, which means out of. The last part of the word, it's the word kaleo, which means call out, to call. So the church then, it, those who have been called out, and that's what's happening there on the day of Pentecost. These 3,000 have been called out of the crooked generation that Peter's talking about, and they've been saved, brought into the body of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been called out? <laughs> you ever been called out? When you got saved, that means God called you out of the world and separated you from the world unto himself for his own special purposes. I think about being called out. You know, I've told you, you know, my daddy was a preacher. I got called out a lot during church. <laughs> it didn't matter where I sat. My daddy knew exactly where I was. And you think you've been called out. Listen, you've never been called out until you're a PK and a preacher's kid and the preacher calls you out by name in the middle of his sermon. And you know, the, the, when you get called out, you immediately snap to attention. I mean, the hair stands up on the back of your neck. At least it did for me when I was a kid. Because I knew that I was doing something that uh, was different, that I shouldn't be doing. And I knew I was under the microscope and that kind of thing. So the church were called out by God from the world. And that's what you've got to understand here in Acts chapter 2. The called out ones begin living out their faith. The life of God on the inside of them begins living and working its way outside of them through a rearranged life. They give themselves to some new habits that they didn't have before. They have a new nature. They have some new loves that they didn't have before. They're separated from the world. You know, God has always intended for his people to be different from the world around them. You go all the way back through the Old Testament, and you see this illustrated with some laws. Uh, think about the dietary laws. You know, the people of Israel were given a strict set of dietary laws, and those laws don't really seem to make sense to us today. But when you read those, you need to remember it involved more than just eating or not eating certain foods. Once they were in the land that God promised to give his people, God wanted his people to reflect his holiness to their unbelieving neighbors. And so much of their dietary restrictions and dietary laws, this was just a simple way whereby God would have his people in the land and their life would look totally different than their unbelieving neighbors. And in that way, God intended for his people to be a witness. Now, that same principle applies to us as the church. God intends for us to be different so that we'll be a witness to the world around us. 
You think about God's people serving as his advertising agency. That's the, that's the idea. A billboard. Every Christian ought to be a billboard to the saving grace of Almighty God. You know, billboards. Have you ever just drove, driven down the interstate? You, you know, you're going somewhere. Maybe you're on a road trip. And you've got billboards advertising certain things. I mean, if you're going up 95, I-95 from Florida, or you're coming down from New York, you hear about this place called South of the Border, right? I mean, there's no telling what kind of money they've spent in advertising on billboards up and down I-95, South of the Border. I mean, you begin seeing those things, and you begin thinking, man, this must be like Disney World or something. This must be an awesome place. And they've got so much advertising that builds it up, that builds it up. By the time you actually get to South of the Border, you're like, I ain't stopping there. Let down, man. Major let down. But the thing is, those billboards, have you ever noticed that there are companies that own those billboards? Like Lamar. I bet you've never really paid much attention to the fact that those billboards are owned by a company. Because the thing is, the whole purpose of a billboard is to not draw attention to itself, but to draw attention to that which it's advertising. You know, Lamar makes somewhere over $2 billion annually just off of their billboards. So it's a major, major business. But you've probably never thought much about Lamar Advertising Agency, but you see what they promote on their billboards. Every Christian ought to be a billboard that doesn't testify of itself, that doesn't seek to bring glory to itself, but rather point people to the God who saved us and set us apart and made us different. God wants you to be a billboard that points other people to his grace. The church ought to be his advertising agency. And someone says, well, what kind of marketing strategy should the church have? The church ought to just be its own marketing strategy just because of lives that have been so changed and impacted by the grace of God and the life of God on the inside working its way on the outside. Our lives are so remarkably different that the world takes notice. That's what God intends. You read the New Testament and you'll find constant exhortations for the church to be different. A reminder that believers are separate from the world. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself to deliver us from this present evil age. Ephesians 4.17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the emptiness of their minds. Ephesians 5.8, walk as children of light. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, you're different. Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His dear love. God's taken us from one kingdom and He's placed us in another kingdom. He's taken us from the domain of darkness and the empire of sin and Satan's uh, realm. He's moved us from that domain and He's placed us in the body of Christ. We've been separated unto Him. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So to be different and set apart means that there's a different way of living my life as a result. 
First Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own special possession so that you may show forth the excellencies of him that called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then 1 John says, love not the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They say, what are you talking about? Love not the world. I thought we're supposed to love the world for the sake of reaching the world. Well, when the Bible talks about the world, it's talking about this fallen world system. Not a world of unbelievers. Folks, we ought to reach out with compassion to an unbelieving world. You know, but we don't compromise what we believe in our doctrine and truth for the sake of reaching the world. It means that we're different and, you know, we're kind of like salmon that are swimming upstream to a cascading world that's traveling in the wrong direction. You understand? So we're different in that way. Jesus, in John 17, when he prayed for his, his church, he prayed for believers, he said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that in the world, you, you leave them in the world, but that you sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart. They're not of the world because I'm not of the world. In John chapter 17, Jesus says that in his prayer at least two times. We're not of the world, but we're in the world for a very specific purpose. And that specific purpose is living a radically different lifestyle so that we're witnesses to the world around us for Christ's sake. And so that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. These that believe the message that Peter preaches, they're separated from the world and they're brought into the body of Christ. And I want to ask you this very personal question. Are you different? Does your life reflect the fact that you've been separated from the world for God as his own special possession? Are your beliefs different? Are your lifestyle patterns different? Is there a different motive behind the way that you live your life? Or or do you just sort of verbally give consent to the gospel, but it's not really gripped you down deep? The life of God has never come to truly indwell you. If not, then repent and believe the gospel. Be saved, be changed. Be separate, be different. So outward proof of inward life, it involves separation from the world around us. Number two, notice that it also involves dedication to the truth. Now, once these believers have been separated from this crooked generation, they've been brought into the church, notice in verse 42 that they give themselves to some new habits. There's some new devotions that that distinguish their life, that characterize their life. And the first thing that's mentioned there in verse 42, the Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they've been brought out of the world, they've been brought into the church, now they're devoted to the truth of God himself. Apostolic teaching there, it's the teaching of the apostles, it's the truth, it's what we now have contained in the 27 books of the New Testament apostolic doctrine. But pay attention to that word devoted there in verse 42. This is an imperfect tense verb, and it describes an ongoing, reoccurring, habitual activity over a period of time. This is not simply a one-time activity that they give themselves to, but now their life is characterized by this new pattern of devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. They'd been baptized into fellowship. They had been habitually set apart by new devotion. Their lives were transformed, and the life of God on the inside of them is beginning to work its way out, and it's demonstrated through some some different patterns. 
They're now continually devoting themselves to something that had been absent before. And what's the first thing they become devoted to? They're devoting themselves to the truth of God's Word. The apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. This was a spiritual reflex. This is evidence of their faith. They believed the truth about Jesus, and now they wanted more of it in their lives. And so when Luke is writing here and he refers to the apostles' teaching, he uses a word uh, that, that, that sort of speaks of a specific body of instruction. It's the word we get the word doctrine from. These men and women had come to faith in Jesus. Now they needed to be built up in that faith. And they're craving the milk of the word. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 8 that if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You prove that you're my disciples by continuing in my word. If the Spirit of God has come to live within you, He is the Spirit of truth. And the Spirit of God in you will long for the truth of God. You'll have, rather than having a rebellious spirit, you'll have a submissive spirit. Rather than having a heart of unbelief, you'll have a heart of belief that takes God at His word. This is the evidence of the life of God in a person. It's proof that a birth has taken place. You know, those of you in the room who've had babies in recent months, there's something about that baby. When that baby's born, that baby instinctively craves his or her mother's milk, right? There's a longing for mama's milk. It's, it's within the nature of that baby. Well, the same thing's true for a believer. A believer, if there's been true conversion take place in a person's life, then that person's going to long for the milk of the Word. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. And Paul says something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where he talks about how he was a good minister, uh, nourished in the words of faith and sound doctrine that he carefully followed. The Word of God is living, it's powerful, it nourishes spiritual life, and evidence of the life of God in a person is love and desire for His truth. In fact, it's increased exposure to God's Word that renews our minds. It helps us to discern what God's good and perfect will is for our lives. This is exactly what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed to the world around you. Don't be conformed to this present world of unbelief with its own patterns and choices and ways that it wants to live its life apart from God. Don't be conformed. Don't let the world press you into its mold, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How is the mind of a person renewed? Through constant exposure to God's word. A life, a mind, a heart, a will that's saturated with the truth of God's Word. Folks, I don't think we fully understand the degree, the degree to which the world around us is constantly trying to press us into its mold. Do you realize the world around you is constantly trying to tell you what you ought to believe as a person? I mean, through social media now, this has been really ramped up. The world wants you to embrace its ideals. The world wants you to embrace its values many of which may sound good, but it's just not square with what God's Word has said. It's not the way that God's designed His world to operate and work. Who's behind all of this in this fallen world system? Satan is. The God of this world, the Scripture says He's the prince of the power of the air. 
And so the world and the world system around you is constantly trying to get you to conform to its ideals for life. And the thing is, God has saved you so that you can be different. And he wants you to be in a process of being renewed on a daily basis by continual exposure to the truth of his word. That's why these believers are giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now that tells me a few things. Uh, It tells me that there's a humble posture that's characteristic of their life now. You know, I imagine that prior to this moment, there were some people in the group who thought they knew everything. They probably were spiritually proud. They probably were proud of their Jewish ancestry. They probably had every I dotted and every T crossed. But you see, the thing is, the Spirit of God so used Peter on the day of Pentecost that these people were crushed with the weight of their sin. They were crushed with the fact that they had been guilty of crucifying the Messiah. They were crushed by the fact that they were responsible for their sin, that they alone deserved condemnation for their sin. And I'm glad that Peter, in his sermon, he didn't leave people there. (laughs) It is no gospel that takes the truth and beats people up and then leaves them in that beaten up, pitiful condition. No, Peter gives them some hope that they can sink their teeth into. Peter gives them some good news that they can believe. He says, yes, you crucified Christ, but let me tell you, you can be forgiven for your sin. You can be set free. Uh, You can be born again. You can be saved. And that's what happens. They believe and they're broken and they have a humble posture that wants more and more and more of this truth that Peter was preaching about. Same thing ought to be true in the life of any person. Do Do you take advantage of every opportunity that you have to be under the preaching and teaching of God's Word? Now, we live in a podcast society. You can podcast and listen to your favorite preachers, your favorite Bible teachers. And man, thank God for technology. I want to use that. I, I'm, I'm a, I get blessed by a lot of that myself. But something can be said for the way that God has ordained his church to function, to where there's regular habits, regular opportunities for God's people in a local fellowship to be under sound teaching, sound preaching, so that they can be built up in their faith. And that happens in the pulpit. It happens in congregational worship like this. It happens in small groups and Sunday school classes. Every person in in the felt, we need to be under sound instruction because, listen, the world around us is constantly trying to tell us what to believe, y'all. And I need to be reminded of the truth daily, weekly. So make the most of the opportunities that you have. I mean, it amazes me. This doesn't say the first thing that these people become devoted to were were programs and good ministries of the church. You know what I'm saying? Some people are committed to the church in as much as it gives them something that they themselves can do. But it's an amazing thing. You know, you never see them in corporate worship. You never see them pulling up to the table in small group Bible study. You never see them living with a humble posture of of having a teachable spirit and someone pouring into their life. They're just just constantly busy doing this, busy doing that. Never have time to get under the word. That's not what the early church does. The, The life of God in them expresses itself first and foremost by them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they're separated from the world. They're devoted to the Word. There's a third thing, and I'll probably just give you this and then finish. Participation in the church. A third way that the life of God is expressed in an outward fashion, it's through participation in the church. Separation from the world, dedication to the truth, participation in the church. 
The Bible says that they became devoted to the fellowship. Not only the teaching of the apostles, but they devoted themselves to the fellowship, which means they devoted themselves to the regular gathering of themselves together. They, they took the opportunity seriously uh, to be a faith family. And that's what fellowship means there. It's the word koinonia. It speaks of a common life, a shared life, a participation in, a, in the same life. You know the same spirit that lived in them, that came to live in them? It's the same spirit that lives in me and you, all these generations removed. Folks, in Jesus Christ, there, there is one common spirit who has come to indwell us all. And our identity in the church, we don't find our common identity by the color of our skin. Amen. You listening to me? Which is why the body of Christ is beautiful and diverse. And the body of Christ really ought to give the world around us an opportunity to see what's so different about this community of believers. Why is it that we on the outside can't seem to get our act together? But why is it that the church on the end, what is it that characterizes this group of people? How can so many people who are so different, look different, come from so many different backgrounds, what is it that brings them together in this same family? It's not the color of their skin. It's not their social class. None of that. It's the Spirit of God who's brought them together in Jesus Christ. One Spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And you see how this common life, this common fellowship is lived out. The rest of Acts chapter 2 shows you how tangibly it's lived out. It's, it's observable. There's a noticeable difference about their lives. They're, they're participating in the life of the church. There's unity that describes their fellowship. There's generosity that's descriptive of their fellowship. If anybody had a need, somebody had something extra that they could sell or part with, they gladly did so to meet the need in another person's life. And folks, listen, I'm just simply saying this. If the life of God has taken up residence in you, then it will be working its way out. It will be working its way out. 